earlier this year, my brother-in-law was free diving in Tulum, which don't you wish you could start conversations that way all the time? Now, uh, free diving, if you're not familiar with this, is an extreme sport where the goal is to try and dive as deep as possible into the ocean while holding your breath. No scuba gear, no oxygen, anything like that. Um, the goal is to swim as deep as possible. The greatest free divers in the world have gone 700, 800 feet deep on a single breath. Doesn't that sound fun? There's a recent documentary that's getting a lot of attention, and it's all about free diving. It's called The Deepest Breath. Has anybody, anybody seen this? I'm not sure if I can handle it, but I hear it is just terrifying and amazing. And the free divers that it follows around traces their life. I mean, you've got to be a little bit crazy uh, to want to hold your breath for 10 minutes underwater and think that that's really fun. Now, I haven't watched it, but there is a there's a line from the documentary, and it's the, the, the protagonist, the main character, her name is Alessia. She is a professional free diver. She's trying to break the world record uh, for a, a woman's free diving. And it says that from the time she was really young, she was driven by this passion for free diving, this obsession that she wanted to be the deepest woman in the world. And we're going to set that image aside. We'll come back to that in a bit. These last four weeks, we've been looking together at how wide and long and high and deep is God's love. This is Ephesians chapter 3. I'd encourage you to open that Bible there in front of you. Ephesians 3, verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Now, I want to pause there for a moment around that phrase, together with all the Lord's holy people. You will never experience, you'll never fully grasp how wide and long and high and deep is his love if you try and do it on your own. There's kind of this post-enlightenment version of spirituality that's between me and whatever higher power or transcendent energy that I'm trying to tap into. And it's like, you do your spirituality, I'll do mine. Don't try to put a group label on me. I'm not into tribal ideology. It's just, I'm going to do my own thing. Or you hear people who want, they want spirituality genuinely. They just don't want the church. They don't want the institution and the messiness of having to do this with other people. And time and again, the scriptures will not let us go there. You cannot experience the wide, long, high, and deep love of God apart from God's holy people. It is in the messiness of community, of praying for one another, of worshiping together and singing together and, and holding up our lives in the light of truth together. That's where we experience the fullness of his love. Paul continues, verse 17. And I pray that you, together with all the Lord's holy people, might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is this love. Paul prays that we will grasp the love of Christ. And we looked at this word a few weeks ago. It is the Greek word katalambano, to grasp. Another way to translate this, it means to be ambushed. Paul used this word in another one of his New Testament letters, 1 Thessalonians, where he says this, but you are not in darkness so that they, so that this day, the day of judgment, should surprise you like a thief. And the word there for surprise is our same word. Look out. Don't let it 
Don't let the day of judgment catalambano you. Don't let it sneak up on you and ambush you. So why would Paul use a word like this? Of all the words that he could have drawn from, I mean, he's got a good vocabulary. He doesn't say, for example, that my prayer is that you may feel how wide and long and high and deep is this love, or that you may know or understand this love. Why the word grasp? Well, there's another place in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where Peter uses this word. In Acts chapter 10, Peter wakes up to this reality that he has been prejudiced along racial and ethnic lines and that he didn't even know it. He has this vision, this dream where God says to him, Peter, you have to let the Gentiles be part of the church as equals. And here's what Peter says. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And that word, I now realized, that's the word, katalambano. It's like I, I knew that God doesn't play favorites. That's religion 101. I'm a rabbi. But, but then it became real to me. I was ambushed. I knew it, but I didn't know it until it seized me here. So here's what I think Paul is saying. You can, you can know something to be true in your life without truly grasping it. There is a difference between knowing and grasping. And so to illustrate that a few weeks ago, I talked about the difference between reading up on Yellowstone National Park and actually experiencing it in the flesh. And some of you wrote to me, you had similar stories. One family visited the Grand Canyon this summer and they said, it's one thing to, to read everything there is about the Grand Canyon, but then when you step up to the edge of this um, vast, unfathomable canyon that just stretches beyond as far as you can see, it, it seizes you. It overwhelms you. Or another family, they, uh, they have a daughter who just talked for months and months, wouldn't stop talking about how much she wanted a cat. And so her parents made her read all these books about cats and life with cats, and they made, made her watch these instructional videos on YouTube about how to take care of cats. But then the day came, and they got the cat, and they brought the cat home, and they experienced life with the cat, and they got catalambanoed by the cat. <laughs> and a few days later, they couldn't understand why anyone would ever want to grasp a cat. I'm just kidding. They love their cat. I don't, but they do. But this is the difference between knowing and grasping. And see, part of Paul's brilliance is how he brings together grasping and knowing. Experiencing something deep down in your heart, but then also knowing it and comprehending it and being able to think about it in your mind. Look at what Paul does in verses 18 and 19. He prays that, that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep, and then to know this love that surpasses knowledge which we could just spend the rest of the sermon camping out around that one. How do you know something that is beyond knowledge? But part of what Paul's getting at here is you can't have knowledge without grasping or grasping without knowing. You can't split thinking from, from emotion. And I know we've all, a lot of us have taken personality tests where they divvy us up into the thinkers and the feelers. I am an ENFJ, if we have any other ENFJs in the church, anybody, you're supposed to be the extroverts. You're not afraid to let people know. 
but we get split up into the T's and the F's. And it's like, you've got the thinkers over here and they're kind of cerebral and calloused and calculating and cold. And then you have the feelers like me who really understand people and how life works. Paul says, when it comes to experiencing God's love, you can't split thinking from emotion. And so here's what I want us to reflect on today. We're asking, how deep is God's love? Well, the place where we discover the depths of God's love is in the deepest part of our being. Look at verse 16. Paul prays that he, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Something happens when the truth, instead of just being up here intellectually, descends down into your inner being by the power of the Spirit, so that instead of just knowing it, you sense it, you taste it, you you see it, you hear it, you touch it, you feel it. It's taken over. It ambushes you. And then it's like, wow, I knew it. I, I, I knew about it all this time, but now it's got a hold of me. You thought you knew it, but now you're ambushed by the emotion of it. Tim Keller has written about Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician who really laid the groundwork for the fields of statistics and probability. He's an intellectual giant. And when he died, they found that he had written of an experience he had had of God and that he had actually sewn it on the inside of his coat and just kept it with him all the time. And here's, here's what it said. In the year of grace, 1654, and I think we might have this, uh, in the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half an hour after midnight, fire. After that, it says this, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certainty, joy, certainty, emotion, sight, joy, the world has not, uh, uh, forgetfulness of the world and all outside God, the world has not known thee, but now I have known thee, joy, 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 tears of joy, my God, do not leave me. Okay, what is he describing in that moment? What's happened? He got ambushed. He grasped how wide and long and high and deep is God's love. It became real in the deepest parts of who he was. One of the greatest intellects in history. history. And what is it that he sews inside his jacket to keep near his heart? Fire. This profoundly intense experience of the presence and love of God. So this fusing of thought and emotion, knowledge and grasping, not one without the other. So back in verse 16, Paul prays this, that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And I want to talk about that phrase, that word inner being, your inmost self. This is where God wants to meet you by by the power of his spirit. God wants to meet you at the deepest part of you. And this is your soul. Now, I know that word soul can be a little tricky, and it sounds like something from the hot yoga essential oil crowd, and we don't really know what to do with the word soul, and yet we learn it from a really young age. I don't know about you, but there's a bedtime prayer that I learned growing up, and it may have been the first prayer that I ever prayed, and it goes like this, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. Have you ever thought about what a creepy prayer that is for a five-year-old? 
to pray like alone in the dark? Here's what Dallas Willard says about the soul. Your soul is not just something that lives on after your body dies. It is the most important thing about you. It is your life. And it's the part of you that most longs to be connected to God. We see this language of the soul's longing for God throughout the scriptures, but mostly we see it in the Psalms. John Calvin said the Psalms are a complete anatomy of every part of the human soul. They're songs that help us understand the condition of our souls. So take, for example, Psalm 42. It begins like this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. It is the part of you that is most longing to be connected to God. Then if you go down to verse five, why my soul are you so downcast? Now, this was fairly common in the ancient world and not just in the Bible that writers would address the soul in the third person. It is as if your soul is so deep that there are parts to my soul I can't even understand and, and control. Why are you downcast, my soul? Three times in the 42nd Psalm and in the next Psalm, the writer asked this same question of his soul. Why are you down? Now, one way of reading this is that it's a rhetorical question. What's a rhetorical question? It's when I ask my son who's sitting in the backseat of the car, why did you hit your sister? I'm not looking for a, a, you know, a reasoned response to said question. Well, I hit her because she's being annoying. No, what I'm saying in asking that question is, dude, stop it. Like, that's not how we treat other people, okay? So is that what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 42? Why are you downcast, my soul? In other words, does he keep saying, soul, stop it. Stop being downcast. Snap out of it. Is that, is that what he's getting at? I don't think so. Scholars who study the Psalms in this moment, they think what the writer is really, is really doing here. He's asking a legit question. He is looking inward. Why, why is my soul so down? He's, he's examining his heart, his life, his soul. What is causing this? He's listening to his heart. It's like this is where I most long to experience the presence of God. And so why am I so downcast? He goes on, my soul is downcast within me, therefore... I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his, not, his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And just reading those words, it's like we're listening in on someone who has learned to plumb the depths of what's really going on at the deepest part of who they are. And I don't know about you, but there is a part of me when I read this language in the scriptures, why, soul, are you downcast? Deep calls out to deep. It's like there's something in me that feels like, man, I, I am living on a different plane than that. So often throughout the day, I'm not going that deep. I'm just barely scratching the surface here. We live in a chronically, uh, dangerously shallow world. Superficiality, Richard Foster once said, is the curse of our age. I'm going to give that a moment just to sink in a little deeper. 
superficiality is the curse of our age. I'll tell you one place where I'm noticing this in my life. I have, I have a much harder time reading for extended periods than I ever used to. After about a few minutes uh, with a book, I find that my mind just begins to wander more often than it ever used to, and it's usually towards stuff that doesn't even matter. And I wonder if there's a part of my brain that has been so conditioned to want quick, shallow bursts of stimuli. Shorter articles, Instagram posts, tweets, X's, whatever they're, you know, called now, or this, it's like I'm after this little hit of dopamine when I check a website once again, or I get a ping that I've got an email or a new notification, or somebody has interacted with me on social media, and I think it's made me shallower. I used to be able to sit in a library for hours on end and just get lost in a book, and somebody would come and wake me up, and they're like, sir, you've been snoring in the church history section again. We are living in a chronically shallow world. So real quick, quickly, because I don't get to preach for two hours like they did 300 years ago when everybody had really deep thoughts. What are some of the indicators? What are some tells of a shallow soul? And I'm going to walk through a few of these. First indicator of a shallow soul, my thoughts and interests mostly tend to gravitate around me and what I want. Whereas a deep soul has this tendency to move toward others, this capacity to make room in your soul to feel what other people feel, to to join them in the highs and in the lows. It takes a deep soul to be able to do that. The shallow soul is just too busy, worried about themselves. Last weekend, we had a long drive from the place that we were staying in North Georgia to the airport in Atlanta. And anytime you fly through Atlanta, there's just like this increase in the anxiety level because it is the busiest airport in the world. It is the only place where if you pay the extra money for that clear security lane, that you're actually going to wait longer because everybody uses the clear security lane at Atlanta airport. And we're already running late because the traffic in Atlanta is really bad. Um, I know I'm just kind of bashing on my former city here, but I'm driving the compact rental car with our family of five in through traffic, and it's a little bit faster, and I'm driving maybe slightly more aggressive with the brakes and the gas pedal than I normally would. And so because of that, my wife, Allie, who's in the front seat, she starts to get a little car sick. She's feeling a little queasy. And I'm, I'm picking up on this. She hasn't really told me this, but I can sense it, that she's not feeling good. But if I'm really honest, I was too concerned about my own kind of stuff in the moment, like missing the flight and how that would be stressful and how I don't, you know, I'm going to have to run through the airport with the kids and how I might not be able to sleep in my own bed tonight and that wouldn't be good. And that would mean that I'm going to miss all these appointments and I'm going to get behind on work and I'm going to be behind on my sermon on having an unhurried, deeply formed soul. So here we are driving along, uh, daddy's stressed out and mommy's queasy and the kids are fighting in the back of the compact, you know, back seat. And at one point, traffic on the highway, it literally uh, stops, and um, I slam on the brakes, much harder than I probably had to, and finally, Allie says something to me, and she says it very calmly and measurably. She says, love, when you ride the brakes like that, it makes me feel like I want to throw up. (laughs) Now, my first thought in that moment was not, babe, I'm I'm so sorry, and... um, 
the last thing I want is for you to throw up. And is there anything else that I can do to be helpful and to make you feel better? Just please let me know. No, my first thought was, who died and made you the auto safety queen? <laughs> I didn't say that. I don't actually, I didn't say anything for the rest of the ride. And I, I just started to withdraw a little bit. That's kind of what I do sometimes. I got quiet for the rest of the ride. Polite, but distant. Distance is the kind of distance that can, after 15 years of being mar- married, can be a little bit hurtful, but it's subtle enough to have plausible deniability. <laughs> what you're really doing. And so think just processing this week through that interaction and realizing there, there is a shallowness to my life. This inability to move toward others and to feel what they feel. And I'm asking God to lead me into something deeper. Another indicator of a shallow soul is the inability to listen well. We tend to fill silence and conversation with our speaking and our words rather than asking good questions. A deep soul is a great asker of questions. Why? Because questions draw out the things that matter most to someone. It's, it's the best way to see somebody else's soul. Another indicator of a shallow soul, it is more consumed by the wants and desires of right now, whereas a deep soul tends to think in terms of eternity. In fact, look at how Paul ends this prayer for the Ephesians with this benediction, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. That's the prayer of a deeply formed soul. My life is just one small part of this eternal giving of glory to God from one generation to the next forever and ever. And then finally, a shallow soul is forgetful of God, but a deep soul remembers and keeps on remembering God. Psalm 42, verse 6, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you as deep calls to deep. And I love those words, and they have been on my mind all week, as deep calls to deep. This brings us back to that image of the free diver. In that documentary, The Deepest Breath, again, I haven't seen it. I'm not trying to spoil it here. But the free diver, whose name is Alessia, she has this trainer and coach named Steve. And over time, as they dive together and train together, there is this relationship that's forged, and it, it, be, it becomes the closest of bonds. And this coach, Steve, is always there for her, always watching over the diver, making sure that she is safe, even in the midst of great danger, and that even as she swims down to the depths, that she can stay on course. See, part of why she's able to go to such depths, what gives her the courage and the freedom to do that is, is she knows that there's, there's somebody with her, somebody watching over her and ready to intercede for her and that he, he is going to do whatever it takes, even risking his own life for hers. And so we'll close with this. You want to know how deep God's love is for you? Do you want to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is his love? Then look to the one who is always with you, watching over you, who was willing to lay down his life to rescue you from the depths. Remember those words, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. I don't know what the psalmist meant 
when he first cried out those words. What I do know is that thousands of years later, there is an even greater truth to those words. Deep calls out to deep that when we sink down into the darkest depths of pain and abandonment, and it's like, I'm out of breath, and there's no way I can hold on, and I don't even know which way that is up anymore. It's in the depth of our despair that we can call out to the one who has already gone to the depths for us. The man of sorrows who knows what it is to suffer deeply, to be abandoned, cut off, to, to cry out from the depth of his punishment on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross called out from the deep and there was no answer. And he did that. He took on that punishment so that we would never have to, so that now when we cry out from our depths, he who was raised from the dead and from the depths will always be faithful to answer. So Jesus, would you help us to look to you, to keep our eyes fixed on you, whether we're kind of in the depths right now or we're going to be at some point, and I pray that as we seek to be a people who are anchored and grounded and grasping of your love, that you would show us what it means to, to love in the same way that you have loved us in and through your son, Jesus. Amen.